right. Uh, Jesse, what show is this? This is Give Them an Argument. Give No, Give give Me an Argument. Yeah, sorry. Do I have the pronoun? Give You an Argument. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, okay. Well, you know, you usually do, do better at this, but... Uh, <laughs> this oh. is Give Me an Argument with Ben Burgess, a call-in show. He's your host, Ben Burgess. He's a philosopher. He wrote Give Them an Argument. He just wrote a book about Christopher Hitchens. Uh, take it away, Ben. Nice, nice. All right. So um, this, meanwhile, is uh, like my second or third most problematic friend, Jesse uh, Jesse Single, uh, who is a co-host of the Blocked and Reported podcast uh, and uh, has uh, has been on the, uh, the YouTube, I don't know, incestuous half-sibling or whatever it is of this show, <laughs> uh, give them an argument. Uh, before, when we were talking about his new book, I've been on Flash Reported a couple times, and he is. Um, actually, actually, I guess I'd say this about Flash Reported that I, I think that so it's co-hosted by Jesse Single and Katie Herzog, and um, you know I listen to it. You know, not every episode, but pretty often, and you know it's not an uncommon thing that they'll cover some story the uh, the self description is uh, what was it stupid internet bullshit mm-hmm. uh as as the beat of the show right it's not an uncommon thing that i will disagree with some of the arguments made by made by you and Katie it's not an uncommon thing that i'll have a different take on some of what's covered on the show but what i find really valuable about it is that since I'm not going to be able to train myself into just not caring at all about stupid internet bullshit, which would be the ideal scenario, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think it is, you know, like like if, if I'm just resigned to, um, you know, if I'm just resigned to the fact that I'm going to take some interest in this stuff, it's really useful because it's always like the kind, you know, like what, before we kind of get to the argument and get to the takes, it's always the kind of like, good careful deep dive that one would hope that you would just get from like you know not a podcast but you know that's not the world we live in thank you i appreciate that all right well uh i did offer people the opportunity to uh to to call in and yell about jesse about various things that he's uh he's wrong about which by the way i when i started on this platform i thought that would have been one of the useful uses for it is to like have disagreements and i did a whole room saying if you disagree with me call in and i i did not get a lot of takers it was a lot of like i like your stuff but here's this nitpicky thing i disagree with you (laughs) maybe your uh your audience will will have some more maybe they're angrier i hope so anyway yeah yeah yeah. not typically but maybe uh, maybe we got some haters for this episode right all right uh let's uh let's see what we've got uh let's start with matthew are you there matthew i am here can you hear me Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I think I want to take the invitation to denounce Jesse. Outstanding. Um, I do. Uh, some I have sometimes listened to your podcast and I enjoy it, even though um, I probably have a similar relation to it relationship to it as Ben does, because my politics are uh, more to the left of you or Katie. So I often disagree, but. I do sometimes listen to it and I find it entertaining because you talk about dumb shit that people say on the internet and it's enjoyable to laugh at people saying dumb shit on the internet. Um, so the, 
now I'm getting to the reason that I'm so far so you. good. Yeah, yeah it hasn't been much much of a denunciation so far. <laughs> yeah, well, you just wait. Um, I think that I think that you do a good job of um, seeing when people, especially people on the left, but not only people on the left, and by left I mean like the people who get referred to as the left in the United States in 2022. Um, but you don't, you do a good job of uh, calling them out on uh, dogmas that are unsupported. But I think every political faction has its own dogmas. And I think the dogmas that get least called out in our society are the dogmas of the kind of center of the political spectrum going from the center right to the center left. And um, in the spirit of Twitter and the internet, I want to point out a offhanded remark that you made on your podcast like nine months ago. Um, Perfect. On a subject that you, as far as I'm aware, haven't written about and don't consider yourself an expert on, but nonetheless is worthy of denunciation, which is that you... Um, you thought it was ridiculous that people on Twitter, I think this was during the latest Gaza war in May, that you thought it was ridiculous that people on Twitter were referring to the Israel-Palestine conflict as an example of colonialism. And since I think you're an open-minded person, I hope that you'll reconsider that view. And I'll just make three very quick points for why I think you should reconsider it. One thing I'll say is that the, the early Zionist movement very much saw themselves as a colonial movement. And if you read their writings, they use the word colonialism because colonialism wasn't a bad word at the time. It wasn't taboo. Right. So they described what they were doing as colonizing. And like one of their groups was called the Zionist Colonization Agency. And... I want to be clear. It's really to say that is really not about denouncing all the individual Jews who came to Palestine and fled anti-Semitism in Europe. I'm sure I would have done the same thing, but they were inspired by European colonial movements and they understood what they were doing as colonialism because they were going somewhere not to integrate into the society, but to, settle the land and kind of create their own society. And while there were, of course, many different views on the Arab question, as it was called, yeah, they, they eventually, you know, the mainstream of Zionism did not take that question. Can I, can I break in just because I, I just want to make sure we're actually disagreeing productively. Um, sure. I, if memory serves, I was, I thought I would, I, I, I only vaguely remember this. Um, I thought I was. Well, how can you not remember an offhand remark <laughs> nine months ago on your podcast? Right, exactly. Well, it's like if you if you see like LeBron James in a press conference, like professional athletes can really they can remember every play of a game, who was where, who cut where. Podcasters are the same way. Um, it, obviously, that the the history of Zionism is literally a land being colonized. I think I was referring to more people trying to put in the box of like white supremacy and like white people versus people of color. Uh, I shouldn't have said. And, and also, like, I, I think to a certain extent, it's not necessarily useful in trying to solve the conflict today to treat it as colonial. But, yeah, it was, it, it was obviously 
Colonial, and I'm, I'm listening to an, um, an amazing podcast by a weird guy named Martyr Maid uh, about the history of Zionism, and it, that's sort of what it's about. So anyway, I didn't mean to imply um, whatever my own thoughts on the conflict. Uh, clearly, it was a colonial undertaking. They, people, Jews from all over the world moved to a patch of land, and they set up a state there, and people were expelled from it, so... Yeah, yeah. yeah and, well, and I see you're trying to get to, out of uh, being denounced. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. No, I no, do no, that. Don't worry. Don't worry. We're not going to let him get away with it. But I was, I was just going to say to just to you know add on to the denunciation uh, that um, that also a lot of early Zionist writings, like at least by the sort of um, right wing of early Zionism, like Zab- you know Jabotinsky, uh, would explicitly use the metaphor of the settlement of the Americas and like the Arabs as 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 the you know as the Indians who are being cleared out of the West and, you know, and, and stuff like this. Right. So it's like, there are a lot of things you can say that are sort of taken as offensive now, but were you know, by at an earlier stage of the movement, were you know, very much embraced by it. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, that's one of the things you get, the podcast is called fear and loathing in the new Jerusalem. It's, it's a mini series, but um, he talks about the early Zionists fighting about this. They, their views range from like the Arabs, in Palestine don't exist and we can do whatever they want to. There were Zionists who were actually for the time fairly, um, to the extent you can call them conscientious. They were anyway. Yeah. I'm just saying there was disagreement, but yes, obviously colonial. Um, so I if, I can, if I can just have one more, one sure, more sure. chance at denouncing you, because <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, I agreed with the first thing you said there, because I do, I am sort of immersed in like the Israel-Palestine discourse. And I do think now there's a tendency where there's an over-reliance on white supremacy. And this is not only um, happening with regard to the Palestine conflict, but uh, the more race-focused sectors of the American liberal left um, tend to apply American racial categories and American racial politics over the whole world, and they don't yes. understand. They don't understand, and they're particularly ill-fitting in Israel for many reasons. Yeah, and it's and it's a it's a weird thing too because it's like I, I don't understand what it adds to anything to uh, to assimilate people into these categories because I mean I would assume that in the history of the world there are lots of instances of people like brutally oppressing, committing genocide against, and, you know, doing various other bad things to other people where neither of the parties in the conflict were white. I mean, like, that's not a, that's not I, a real... I, I, yeah, I, I find it... I, I mean, I, I, I agree with you, Matthew, that it's used too much. I find it as a, as a rubric for American foreign policy, especially recent American foreign policy, to be particularly ridiculous. It's like when we're... When we're uh, when we're backing Saddam Hussein but opposing the Shiites, that's that's why it, it, there's it's just like especially in the Middle East, it's much more complicated than that. It has a lot more to do with, you know, allyships of convenience and, and who these the bullshit fight against quote unquote Islamo fascism. So I'm just I'm agreeing with you. This is a this is a weak denunciation. There's too much agreement. Uh, okay, but I didn't I didn't get to oh, I'm my sorry. denunciation. My yeah, denunciation yeah. is that I disagreed with the second thing that, that you said in, in response to my first speech, which is that you you don't think it's useful or relevant to solving the conflict now, because I would say that the reason the conflict can't be solved now is people people talk about it as if there's two equal parties and they need more dialogue and they just need to get to know each other better and overcome their prejudices. And they don't understand the fact that there's a power relationship. And that's a colonial yeah. power relationship, not just going back to the Zionist colonization of Ottoman Palestine and British Palestine, 
but in the West Bank, I mean, it's it's the occupation. It's literally, it's a literal colonial um, occupation because there's uh, the the settler population lives under Israeli law, and the indigenous population who live in the same area are subjugated, and their uh, resources are controlled by the colonial power. And that's that's not a statement about about Jews and whether Jews should live in the West Bank. It's a statement about the political relationship that exists between the two peoples. And I think you'll only solve the conflict if you understand that it's Israel is the party that needs to be placed under outside pressure and forced to to uh, give up its power through, you know, whether it's through partition or a federation or one state or whatever, the conflict will not be solved if you look at it in terms of two equal parties that just need more dialogue. Unfortunately, I agree. I agree with you still. Uh, yeah. yeah <laughs> I mean, I just, to the, to the extent and, and what well, we, we should move on, but to the extent I, I, I don't remember what I was saying. I, I think that the idea of colonialism in the sense of we're occupying this foreign land or someone is to extract their resources and um, stuff like that. I think the situation in Israel is like, not quite that it is it and and like the reason we support israel isn't quite that it it has to do with like a lot of historically contingent stuff just about you know uh, the relation like john judas has a good book on this on just the relationship of the zionist lobby to the u.s government and i anyway i i it's obviously an act of colonization the occupation is but i just i just think the traditional view of colonization isn't doesn't do a great job uh, elucidating the conflict. Yeah, I, I mean, I actually think just to just to move to a completely uncontroversial and non-inflammatory metaphor that <laughs> South Africa, uh, you know, like like is is uh, is a lot closer than the traditional colonialism, right? Like like is it I, is it exactly the case that uh, I mean, like one certainly in the 1980s, no sane person should say that like you know white Afrikaners just shouldn't live in South Africa, right? Like, that would be ridiculous. Uh, but, but two, you know, it's even though you have, obviously, you know, disenfranchisement, et cetera, et cetera, uh, you know, the, the relationship between uh, the South African government and, like, people living in, in Bantustans uh, probably was, like, importantly different from, like, the relationship between, like, a European power and its, like, colonies somewhere else in the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, Matthew, I would not, I would not say again that uh, if I was going to make that statement, just to wrap this up, if I was going to make this statement again about colonialism as a lens for understanding the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, I would do so in a much more hedged and careful and nuanced way. Because I, yeah, I agree with you. It's, uh, on its face, it doesn't really make sense to say that. All right. Well, you got me. Uh, yeah. No, this is good. I think, I think, Ma- like actual Maoist struggle sessions mostly consisted of people very carefully, you know, praising the good stuff and making mm-hmm. sure that they were probing for whatever the areas of disagreement we should we could be, but not like overstretching. So As uh, as Mao famously said, in all things moderation. Yeah, no that I think that was Mao. Okay. Um I might be mispronouncing this. My apologies if I am, but uh Kusha. Hello Ben. It's a pleasure to be in dialogue with you for the second time and you pronounce my name very well. It is Kusha. And uh, nice to speak to Jesse for the first time. Hi Kusha. Hi. So today Ben put out a tweet about Vladimir Putin that goes, quote, Putin, the right wing gangster capitalist oligarchy he presides over and Russia's regional mini imperialism are all bad. Everyone should be clear about that. But FFS, uh, I don't want to say the curse words, 
opposing for fuck's sake. Imperialism should be the overwhelming yeah, that, that is in fact what that stands for. That's correct, yes. Should be the overwhelming priority for American leftists, and that should go without saying, end quote. I completely agree with Ben Burgess on that. I think that there's a framework that I discussed with Ben the last time I had uh, the opportunity to do a dialogue with him, when I was mentioning Bani Saad, one of the former presidents of the Islamic Republic of Iran, and how Jeremy Corbyn was mourning him through Twitter and so on. And what I want to provide is um, a framework I'd really like to hear your analysis on because I think that it might give us some strong grounding. I have observed there to be generally three categories of Global South leaders with respect to the U.S. government's power brokers. And obviously, I'm yeah. not saying this is a definitive, complete, all-encompassing framework, but I think it can give us some, a lens. I think, firstly, there's a pretty firmly set of steadfast allies like King Salman bin Abdulaziz of Saudi Arabia, El Sisi of Egypt, Batista in Cuba, Pinochet in Chile, Videla in Argentina, Mohammed Reza Pahlavi Shah in Iran, for instance. And I think there's a second group, which is those who have always pretty much been enemies, quasi-enemies, or just one step away from that status, like the Assad family in Syria, Hugo Chavez in Maduro in Venezuela, Ortega in Nicaragua, and Gaddafi in Libya. And the third set, which I think goes under the radar, but it's one of the most critical because of how relevant it is to one of the most um, clearly defined enemies of the U.S. government, is those who were intended or actual allies that went rogue, like Manuel Noriega in Panama, Saddam Hussein in Iraq, Rafael Trujillo in the Dominican Republic, and the Islamic Republic of Iran itself. And I can justify that at great length if you'd like, but I'd like to begin by just having you two reflect on that framework. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think, okay, so that was interesting because when you read off that tweet, I thought for an excited second that we we're going to go off script and have a denunciation of me. But uh, uh, but, but, I think, uh, but I think that that's... Uh, um, but... Uh, but I think that that's correct. I think uh, Jesse just lost his connection, but I hope he will be back in a moment. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I think that's correct. I think those those three categories do definitely all um, all exist. Uh, you know, without sort of maybe you know pausing to do the deep dive on how Iran fits in there, which is a fascinating question. But you know, but but uh, but just just for the sake of brevity, I, uh, what you know how and whether it fits. But but I think that. Um, Certainly, it is interested in thinking about uh, the Putin case that uh, that 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 Putin um, for sure fits uh, right because because uh, Putin was the uh, was the the handpicked successor of of uh, of Boris Yeltsin who who the United States went to great effort to 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 put in and keep in as uh, as as president of Russia as as recently as the you know as the first. Uh, uh, not the first, the second Bush administration, right? I mean, you know, George mm -hmm. W. Bush famously said, what, what, what did he say? He looked into Putin's eyes and he saw his <laughs> his heart. <laughs> yeah. And there was that movie too, right? Spinning Boris. That was during Bush's time, the 2003 movie Spinning Boris. Yeah, yeah. No, for, for sure. I, I mean, I think that, and then even, I mean, I guess this is, this is interesting too, that, um, that I think, uh, that the politics of this have really changed a lot, right? Like that, mm -hmm. like like the like the American domestic politics of Russia have changed a lot over the last bunch of years. Uh, that on um, 
like in 2012, there, there was this amazing moment in the in the debates where uh, the candidates were asked what the biggest geopolitical threat to the United States was, and Obama said climate change, and Romney said Russia, and and he was like widely mocked by liberals for saying that, right? Because like <laughs> you know Russia was still considered to be sort of maybe an ambiguous frenemy, mm-hmm. but. Mm-hmm. Uh, but not exactly an enemy, and then, of course, uh, all of that kind of flipped in the Trump years. And now I guess I'm not sure, right? Like, uh, because I, I think that, um, you know, I think that I saw some polling data earlier from uh, from my, uh, you know, high school classmate. I have not talked to him since then, uh, Nate Silver, uh, where uh, he, uh, but he had a 538 post about this where he said that, like, Democrats were more likely than Republicans to want the United States to be like more involved on the side of Ukraine against Russia. Uh, but um, the, and, and like Republicans more than independents, but like young, like, like young Democrats mostly didn't want that. Uh, and, and I will say at least judging by, you know, I'll be real careful about this, but people in my extended family who I think watch a lot of Fox News, uh, I, I, I suspect that like the, that Fox News might be going back a little bit to the uh, the 2012 line about about Russia. Uh, I, I mean, I, I guess I just like like in a way this goes back to the discussion with with like Jesse's point in the previous answer about white supremacy that um I mean, as incredibly simple-minded as this is, I mean, we kind of got into it when you called before with with Thaddeus was here about the the uh, the Corbett angle, but like mm-hmm. on the as incredibly simple-minded as this is, it's like shockingly controversial to say, especially about stuff like this, that like more than one thing could be bad, that like lots <laughs> yeah. of things, lots of things could be bad yeah. at the same time. <laughs> it seems so simple, yet it's so difficult for so many people, and. I just want to know why, like, why I think it requires one to really commit to an ideology that requires a lot of sacrifice of reason and decency when you make those types of commitments. Because I think any sensible person from childhood would start to see that, okay, this is clearly bad, and that doesn't preclude for me from thinking this other thing is bad as well. Yet yeah, I've seen people you, you could have things, that, things are people that are in opposition to each other that are both bad. I actually do, so, so I do want to get to other calls, but I, I, I do want to just, just add in one other thought about this and get Jesse in on this, uh, because it seems to me that, like, you know, whatever you 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 think about, like, the Russia-Ukraine stuff, I, I you know, if I had to, to speculate, I think Jesse probably has more sensibly, sensible and centrist thoughts than I do, but, like, I, I have... I guess one thing that does really hit me about this is that one thing that it makes Americans incredibly stupid about this stuff is the long shadow of World War II. So everything always, all the time, has to be World War II. So like if you're, um, uh, you know, like like if you're like really gung ho about stopping Putin, then you know, then then Putin in the Ukraine is Hitler in the Sudetenland, and it's World War II. Uh, if you're like the kind of like really dumb version of a left anti-imperialist who thinks that uh, who who disagrees from the other direction with saying that more than one thing could be bad these little um, countries they won't stop provoking putin it's so unfair yeah yeah exactly and, and so and the way you make that story work right is that you is that you point out you know creepy far-right paramilitaries in the ukraine which are a thing and are part of the fighting with russia and then say aha see they're actually the ones who are hitler and and I guess my my big thought about this, you know, Jesse could add whatever you want, but like I just think it's 
it's entirely possible to have international conflicts where nobody is Hitler. Hmm. I don't know. I prefer the double Hitler theory, even the triple Hitler theory. No, I mean, I, 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 I don't really know enough about this. I've just been shitposting on Twitter. It's just, it seems obvious to me that, uh, well, people keep talking about it like we're, like we're about to be active participants in a war involving Russia, which doesn't seem pretty likely. Uh, it, it seems like on the whole, it's bad that Russia wants to fuck with and potentially invade Ukraine and, and what he did today is bad. I, I, I don't know. I'm just going to repeat back to you the same thing you said, that a lot of things can be true at once and that people are trying to fit this into very simple good and evil narratives that I, uh, I think are ill-fitting in this case. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is a very low chance of the United States being directly involved in a war, although also um, I find it odd that that possibility, however slim is not treated as a bigger deal, right? That they, that like, there's been this like crazy sort of, you know, tense diplomatic standoff with the U S and Russia, maybe the more, the most so in several decades. And like during a lot of that time, like capital T capital D, the discourse has been like mostly about Whoopi Goldberg and Joe Rogan. And that, that's well, a- Joe Rogan is a much bigger threat to uh, civil society than anything Russia related. Oh, yeah. Okay. Fair yeah. enough. But uh, let's take uh, Jamil. Jamil. Oh, I got. It's the first time I used the app, so I had to figure out which button was which. Um, thank you for taking my call. Um, I wanted to uh, push back on yep. the idea something inappropriate about us uh, assuming that um, the racial politics in other countries will be uh, very similar to our own. Okay, yep. Um, You know, the United States has active military bases in 160 countries um, all over the world um, with over 150,000 uniformed service members um, on six continents. Yeah. Definitely more force in the world than any empire in uh, the in human history. And don't expect tribute or collect taxes or spread our religion or uh, really make any demands in these other countries whatsoever. I think it's perfectly reasonable for us to uh, just make the you know disrespect them to mold their um, racial politics to match them. Um, the American history. It's really not. Uh, so, so, so perhaps like every country around the world has to, um, should just have to file a report like a, uh, once a year or so to, to say, uh, to, to reaffirm like which group is more like black people in the United States, which group is more like white people. And you know, that uh, just, just so we can. You should do the family guy spectrum where you can put different countries on a, uh, where on the spectrum they lie. How they do that in our history books to um, make things set, to make things uh, more similar to ours, just so it's easier for us to understand. Um, yeah, no, that that would be the that would be the decent thing to do. Uh, it is it is very confusing when other people have other histories and other cultures. And you know, I really hate and, that. And they, uh, I'm glad this came up. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I mean, I I just I I really can't be bothered to keep track of all that. So um, so yeah, that would be that would be good. I guess I would also say just just one one other thought I had about this that like I would even go so far as to say like I think that one of the 
I think the fact that like quote unquote white supremacy has become the all encompassing like supreme explanatory category, even for everything that happens in the United States is not always terribly productive for like figuring out like uh, this, the sort of nature of what's wrong with the United States and how to have a more just society and all that stuff. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Well, sometimes it serves to actively obscure that because it, it gives people who actually have access to a tremendous amount of privilege and power, this like, frankly a card to play sometimes i mean if you like look at sort of like are we still using the term pmc uh yeah yeah on this on the show yeah you you can still use that on this show yes i mean if you look at like pmc discourse on this the amount of energy spent on like which graduates of prep schools and ivy league schools are getting (laughs) like harassed on twitter or potentially microaggressed at work and i'm not saying those things never happen but there's been this huge gravitational pull on the quote-unquote white supremacy conversation toward sort of upper middle class manifestations of it that are often like either ambiguous or frankly, if you're of the opinion that America is a white supremacist hellhole, which that that's not really my opinion, but that's what a lot of these folks think. Why would you be focusing on this shit instead of like making sure people aren't dying in the streets? Yeah. And, and I would say, I mean, look, my, you know, I've been reading uh, Adolf Reed's new book. It's called the South uh, Jim Crow and it's afterlife. Uh, I want to read that. Yeah. It's a really good book, but uh, in, um, and um, and in that, you know, in that book, I mean, I think his perspective on this, which is right. And I don't actually I'm going to I'm going to withdraw that claim because I think that, like, whereas my thinking about a lot of this stuff has been influenced by him, I don't want to drag him into like any of my bad takes. So I'll just say my perspective <laughs> <laughs> is, uh, is that um, like it's America, white supremacist hellhole. I mean, America you know, is in certain respects and for certain people a hellhole. And that that does have something to do with this like apartheid history that we had until relatively recently. A lot of the sort of shape of it has something to do with that. But at the same time, like what's wrong with America right now is just not at all what's wrong with it at the time that the Reed book is about, right? Like that they have a, like it's not, um, you know, what he's describing, like growing up in New Orleans when like, you know, as like a, you know, middle class black kid, you know, had to like navigate all these segregation codes and stuff like that. Yeah. That, that, that's just, that's just very different, right? <laughs> well, I mean, the, but the one, the one exception is like the one, the one group where there's a version that's totally going on is like, there are American descendants of slaves who have been trapped in generations of, of poverty. And that's horrible. And those are the, some of the groups that need the most help. But to me, calling a country white supremacist when some of the most successful groups in it are not white. And it's obviously complicated when you bring in immigration stuff. I just find it to be such a blunt way to describe what's going on and a way of, to me, taking attention away from, like, the, the problem is poverty in many cases. And they're, no, those are correlate. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it, right? I mean, like, like, it is true that people who are descendants of slaves and descendants of people who live through Jim Crow are because of that history disproportionately likely to be at the bottom of the economic ladder, but also like um, certainly not, you know, exclusively just disproportionately. And, uh, and, and also, you know, I I mean, I think this is like a sort of Corey and Alfred Walter Ben Michaels kind of point. Like it's, it's not like if, if the sort of causal route that leads your family to be living in poverty is something different from that, it's not clear to me that we should be less concerned yeah. about, you know, about that condition in, uh, in, in, in your case. Right. I mean, it's like if the, uh, 
you know, to, to use a really like crass overblown metaphor I've used before. Like it's, it's like if, um, if you have like a serial killer who's trapped a bunch of people in the basement and like some, like, I don't know, half of them are Albanians because the serial killer really hates Albanians for some reason, then like, you know, yeah, you should be honest, you know, like you know, say, yes, there, there is, there is clearly this element to it. That is a dimension of the problem. But like, also the, the main thing is that people shouldn't be trapped in the serial killer's basement. Right. And, you know, like, I, I think that there is, you know, I, I think there is something really troubling a lot of the politics you're talking about that like, when you sort of try to make white supremacy in a not very well explained way, the sort of main axis by which you think about injustice in the United States, I think that you, um, I think that, I think that really lends itself to a towards a politics where there's always often this weird implication that the ideal thing would be that you have demographically appropriate portions of each group, uh, living in poverty and being subject to, you know, aggressive policing and, you know, right. et cetera, you know, like, like that just, that just seems like it would be, you know, I think, uh, you know, sideways to what we'd ideally want, but, um, let's, let's get a, uh, uh, D. All right. Uh, D, are you there? Yeah. Can you hear me? Yep. Hey, sure. So, um, I, uh, I mean, this is a question I'll tr- I'm going to try to actually ask Greenwald tonight. But I guess my question is, uh, going after the racism thing, one of the ways I see it kind of manifest itself in, is in terms of language around um, the elites and um, just the idea, because I know liberals, kind of anti-woke liberals, I guess, Jesse and anti-woke leftists, I don't think Ben's in that case, but kind of pride ourselves on not necessarily being not necessarily like always taking the liberal side, but I feel like we've empowered a lot of the right in some ways, because for example, the idea that um, these, these professors and teachers who are being subject to these McCarthy CRT bans, um, the idea that the professors and teachers are some sort of elites, but the idea that like the, the uh, Rogans of the world and everybody are not elites is to me really disturbing. And that's how it's kind of framed in the culture. Um, or even with these trucker convoy people, it's kind of amazing to me that liberals are being called out for their hypocrisy and not supporting these people. But conservatives who two years ago wanted everybody marching for Black Lives Matter to have their heads bashed in and rightfully and said so at the time are not being called out. So I just wanted to hear from Jesse, like, what is what is his thoughts on that? Because I know you uh, kind of were the Harper's yeah. letter crowd. Well, so, I mean, I stand by the Harper's letter. The Harper's letter said right-wing authoritarianism is a rising global problem. Uh, we also think there's some trouble in our own house brewing, and I, I stand by that. I mean, I've been pretty clear, like the Rufo crusade, where you have these laws, it's it's complicated, right? Because the, the laws range from basically doing nothing but reiterating uh, First Amendment doctrine to some that are really bad. It would basically outlaw conversations you want to have, including, you know, conversations on both sides of the affirmative action debate. So I think the Rufo crusade is stupid. I think certain people like James Lindsay have completely had their brains melted by like, I guess being anti-anti-Trump. I just think since 2016, it's been like a very bad time for people who are online a lot, losing perspective. And one of the things they do is they pretend that the biggest problem in the world is like, quote unquote, woke college professors. And my approach is to, I do write about that stuff. I do critique it because I've, I've, 
absolutely seen it creep into my worlds in ways that I find like really shitty and antithetical to journalism and, and academic writing and thinking. Um, I was very wrong about it in 2016 or 2015 when I said like, this is just college kids. It's dumb, but you just, you just need perspective. I mean, I think the only solution is to have perspective and to understand this goes back to the idea that either um, Ukraine or Putin has to be Hitler. It's like, the question of who has power is really complicated, right? Like, Rogan has a tremendous amount of power. Uh, but the question of, like, which side of the political divide has power varies. It's so context-dependent. Like, it's obviously the case that at a liberal arts university, liberals run everything. They control everything. It's also obviously the case that in many states, conservatives have an ironclad grasp on power. So, yeah, I mean, I'm rambling because I, I think it's hard to sum up my views on this other than that I, I still think there's weird shit going on in many liberal circles and I don't like it and I think it's a fine thing to write about. But if that becomes your one goal uh, or you become a crusader, you literally put a saber next to your Twitter <laughs> account as certain people did. Or you or the best to me is like thinking that the, the solution to this is to, to vote for Trump. You're worried about a liberalism, so you vote for Trump. I find that stuff crazy and I always try to distance myself from it. Yeah. yeah, that's good. That's good to hear. I, I sorry, but I was just saying that's good to hear. Yeah. I, you know, and and I'm not specifically talking to you. I'm talking about there's a certain like niche of people on the liberal side and also on the leftist side that write extensively about these things. And it's like Ben Shapiro, as far as I'm concerned, even in terms of back in 2016 with the campus interruptions, I was uh, he should speak guy. But like people like that, they don't care about free speech. They they'll no. they'll take away every liberal's right to speak. That's not like a Barry Weiss type tomorrow. <laughs> Like they're not people who I would ever ally with because they don't actually care about free speech. It's a just a cudgel to lose, uh, use against us and get gullible what they perceive as gullible liberals to go along with them. I, I think there's a huge amount of disingenuousness both on the campus free speech stuff and 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 the protest. I mean, the protest stuff is the most ridiculous example because you have I don't know if they're perfect parallels, but there is there like I obviously agree with the fundamental cause of the BLM uh, protest more. There was a lot of rioting. There was a lot of property damage. There were some people killed. It was like it was actually pretty bad, and people really did excuse it. So I, I just think we like need, and I think this is what Ben is good at. We need to talk about this philosophically. Like, what are our views on how rowdy protests can get? What are our views on on destroying or invading a government building? And um, that's, I try to focus on that. I, this idea that one side or the other has a monopoly on being crazy or out of control, I really don't like. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I certainly agree. With D, I mean, I mean, it's it's something I I kind of haven't shut up about that the that like there is a amazing amount of conservative hypocrisy on on free speech, uh, and although I also like you know, I don't know there was like a Freddie DeBoer like Substack piece about this a little while ago where he has this nice paragraph that I wish I had in front of me that something like yeah obviously i never expected these people you know to uh, to be good on that but that should be our you know that should be our principle right i mean like don't 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 use the fact that they that they're not really uh advocating our principle as a reason for us not to advocate our principle and and i think that that feels very right to me like i i think um i i think that something that happens a lot with this stuff is that people work backwards from um people work backwards from like owning whoever it is that they hate the most oh yeah to to like whatever their position you know? I, I there was a, I, I wrote about jd vance in my newsletter and and one of the commenters 
was basically like, okay, fair enough point about J.D. Vance, but I'm just so furious at what the left has been doing that I'll vote for anyone who angers the left. It's like, uh, are you sure? You're sure you're not just setting yourself up to be conned by literally any, the worst people in the world? Yeah, yeah, no, right, exactly. So, so I think that there's like, uh, so I think there's that sort of like anti woke version of it that D is talking about that happens a lot. Um, and you know, I, I don't want to, um, I, I'm not going to take the opportunity to start any new beefs here by like naming names, but like I do, you know, beyond what already has been, but like. I do see a lot of people who like start to really hate like media liberals. Yeah. Sometimes for really good reasons. Cause like a lot of them, so suck. a lot of them suck. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but then that just becomes their entire thing in life. Right. You know, that like they, they just have to, you know, like, like their, their most important cause somehow, you know, becomes that they have to just own. Dude, owning the libs is, is awesome from time to time, especially like, like, you know, I have some enemies not enemies, Twitter enemies in that space. And I, I, I can't stand them. But if building your politics around annoying your online enemies and not, not ever thinking about like broader issues, that's sort of the height of privilege. Because then it's just about your own beefs and your desire to feel certain feelings and, and to watch your enemies be defeated. And you're never thinking about like the actual bigger questions of how the world should be organized or anything. No, exactly. And I, th- and I think there is definitely a left version of this where people um... – where people spend all of their time thinking about, I don't know who it is in that case, you know, it's like... Uh, Barry, there's an obsession with Barry, to me, Barry Weiss, who yeah, we probably yeah. disagree on, but like, yeah. you would think Barry Weiss, given the attention paid to her every utterance, was <laughs> the most important political figure in the history of, like, punditry. And it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, not somebody who, who used to have a New York Times column, and yeah, right, the... Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I think we, you know, we do disagree about her a little bit. We actually talked about this in, in a uh, in a lost, uh, you know, it's, it's been. It's, you it's, were very, you were very anti-Semitic, I will say. Yeah, yeah. They, my, well, my anti-Semitic rant was lost like tears of the rain, you know. When that was, <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot about uh, that. The, the recording was fucked up, but the, um, but yeah, I, I mean. But yeah, I mean, whether it's like Barry Weiss, right? They have to disagree with Barry Weiss or, you know, they have to disagree with, I don't know, their uncle or somebody like there, there is this left thing where people just fixate on that stuff and they end up taking these positions that are both like strategically counterproductive and like weirdly at odds with what you would think their principles would be because like, and to me, the ultimate example of this is like leftists who end up like mocking the very concept of free speech, you know, yeah. like 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 as a as just a ridiculous preoccupation. And uh, and I think that this is and, you know, I, I think that the CRT laws, I mean, I think that is incredibly revealing. Right. So I, I did listen to all or at least most of the the episode you did. You you interviewed somebody from Pan America about the uh, Jeffrey the, Sachs. Yeah. About the anti CRT laws. And, you know, it was really informative. I mean, my view is, like, basically I view it in about the same prism as, like, 2004 when there were, like, you know, like, I don't know, dozens of states that were passing, like, anti-gay marriage, like, constitutional amendments. In a lot of cases, they didn't actually do anything because it was already, like, illegal under three different laws, you know. But, like, the the general impetus seems bad to me. And the same thing, I think, is, is true here. And I think there is a lot of like, I mean, was it there's something proposed in New Hampshire that I mean, you know, do you use the word, you know, McCarthy? I didn't you know, for people who think that that's like hyperbolic. I mean, I would say like New Hampshire apparently has some law that's still on the books for the 1950s where uh, they, you know, it's about like teachers who advocate communism and they 
uh, anti-CRT law that's just proposed there um, uh, adds the word social, Marxism and socialism to after communism to make sure that all the bases are covered. Yeah, you know? <laughs> I, 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 um, I've read very little. Todd, Todd Gitlin just died, and I've read very yeah. little of um, his stuff. But I did read Twilight of the Common. Twilight of Common Dreams, I think it's called, and the first chapter is about a school board fight in the Bay Area. This is, I believe, the early 90s. It's all the same shit. We've been fighting about the same shit for decades. It will never go away. It is just like classic liberal versus conservative, Democrat versus Republican, obviously just factions within each, but it's just, it never goes anywhere. And the Rufo thing is really just the latest manifestation of that in many ways. It's not as, and you can see that in the laws, which often aren't, I mean, I've said I'm sort of sick of the subject, but they're not yeah. really about critical race theory most of the time because critical right. race theory is not usually right, taught right. in K-12 classrooms, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And, and, you know, by the way, my position is that, like, there's lots of critical race theories. Like, like if, like, Derek Bell were regularly being assigned in, in high school classrooms, um, you know, there's stuff in there that I disagree with, but, yeah. like, I, I wouldn't have the slightest problem with that, right? I mean, like, I, I think it's fine to assign things that i i disagree with and like have discussions about them and you know i think i think schools ideally should be about you know fostering critical thinking you know uh but but i guess i guess to me like even like some of the details of some of these laws are are pretty bad but also the the more general thing and i think this is you know a point i've heard you make but like something i'd really emphasize is that the you know my concern about the laws in many cases is not just what the text of it is, although in a lot of cases that I've seen, the text is weird and ambiguous and, you know, whatever, but, like, uh, it's not just what the text of it is, but, like, what the realistic psychological effect of it is going to be. Right? Yeah, the chilling effect, because yeah. people are um, loss-averse and, and they don't, yeah. Um, let's try to, uh, so I, in 10 minutes, I, I'm yeah, my yeah, own, yeah, I should have no, mentioned gotta... this up top, I'm, I'm talking to Keith Hump. Oh, of course, Steve. I'm talking in 10 minutes on my own channel talking to uh, Keith Humphreys about the opioid epidemic. He's like an addiction expert. So let's try to get through um, yeah, yeah, I've got a few a, more calls if we can. I'm supposed to go on David Feldman in 10 minutes. I, I, the, uh, the thing uh, – so, so we should be good there. All, all I was going to say is I think that um, in, in a way this does go back to the white supremacy thing though because like I would be much happier if the standard way of doing left pushback against the CRT laws – was to talk about the importance of free speech, not to talk about how everybody supports them as a racist, because I, I, I think that like, I think that's just a way of using the word racist that most people like doesn't fit. With it doesn't. It doesn't. And it doesn't work. It just. It'd be. It's. This has been another trend since like 2015. Like every everything's racist. Everything's fascist. I mean, this is no. This is, yeah, this yeah, has there, always there, been something. A thing on the left. I think it comes in cycles and it's been pretty bad lately. And it just bounces right off people at this point. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think they're, you know, diminishing returns, right? I mean, like in terms yeah. of con convincing people that everybody actually is a racist and a fascist. And in some cases, there might be some truth to it. But I, I, I just think that if you're, I just think that if that's the constant message, that's that's just not going to, I just, I think whatever else is true, I just think it's not going to work. But I think Aaron is one of mine. Let's get Aaron on here. I think he's from my channel. Unless, oh, okay. unless he's a double t teamer. That's probably not uh, the best uh, phrasing. Yeah, maybe not. Uh yeah, no, fair enough. So, um, all right. Aaron, or, or have you been hesitated to denounce Jesse on his own show, but now you're willing to do it here? Um, no, well, first, uh, uh, screw oh, Bill. Oh. Um, screw Bill, yeah, yeah fuck that no, guy. No, we all hate him. He's well, such a cock tease. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, no, I, 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 uh, 
I just want to ask, um, there's a division, like uh, Anthony Crossland had this uh, phrase, uh, radicals are not contemporaries, and contemporaries are not radicals. And you do, do you think some of the divide in our politics is because of people that are like uh, radicals and are fighting for some sort of injustice that they in the past and they haven't really um, thought through with things of, about the present and there's like contemporaries. I don't know. It's an interesting phrase and I thought that I, it's a good way of thinking about things. The sorts of radicals I sometimes brush up against, I don't find to actually be like that politically radical in terms of their like, mm-hmm. like I, I think radlib is a really good term. It was probably mm-hmm. coined by like stupid poll or whatever, but like they're like Hillary Clinton voters and Elizabeth Warren voters who will try to sound revolutionary, but they're just not. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I haven't come across that many like – I mean I guess like on Twitter there's like genuine communists and stuff. But I, I in, in terms of my travels, I haven't come across that many – I'm not really answering the question, but I don't know. No, no, no I, I just me, – me, I meant like radicals in that they're like um, – they're not of the present moment. They're trying to fight uh, for um, – it's it's they're 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 not basing themselves on uh, reality. They're more basing themselves on some sort of conception of a of a better future, and they're they're more concerned with. Um, so it's I don't mean radicals, radicals. I mean radicals in terms of just like um, focusing on some sort of further project. And then there's like people in the contemporary world that are um, just trying to um, arbitrage for a better sort of uh, present. Yeah, although, although going back to Jesse's point, like I, I think a lot of the people we're talking about, um, I don't know how different their conception of of how society should be uh, yeah. actually actually is. Right? I mean, like, like, is it just just to be like crass and probably unfair about this? Right? Like, how much of it is you know, like here's ways that we should actually organize society that are different from the way it is organized now. And how much of it is, you know, we should, you know, whatever we should, we should have, uh, we should have a more diverse ruling class, or we should have more, you know, whatever, like, you know, more of the people that I don't like should be fired, you know, or, right. yeah, uh, you know, like, like I see a lot of that. And frankly, HR, HR should be more powerful so they can fire my enemies. Management yeah, yeah, should yeah. be more powerful. Yeah, totally. And, and I actually think that, like, even people, you know, like you mentioned, like on on Twitter, call themselves communists or whatever. I mean, my perception a lot of the time is that a lot of people who um, who have that perception of their politics and, you know, maybe, you know, very sincerely, like, in practice, they end up still getting kind of sucked into, like, Team Blue and the culture war. Yeah. And um, that's not, like, always bad, because if, like, what people are arguing about is, like, I don't know, you know, should trans people have rights, then it's 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 good to, you know, it's good to be on Team Blue. But, like, also <laughs> it means that, like, you know, that, like, there's a lot of really stupid stuff that doesn't necessarily fit with their professed politics that they end up, uh, you know, they end up supporting anyway, right? Because, because that's, like, kind of just kind of the dynamics that it's, like, really important that you... Yeah, I mean, I mean, the most important thing in the world is that is that you is that you own people who are bad, and and I, I just I just think like, you know, it's like uh, you know, I'll, I'll do a second uh, Freddie DeBoer reference here before we go to the next caller. You know, like he he had this Substack piece like yesterday or the day before 
about what he called definitional collapse, where he gives the example of uh, of anarchists uh, protesting for like stricter, ma- you know, mask and vaccine requirements. <laughs> that was awesome, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, what, what the hell is going Very on? Very confusing. There? Yeah. <laughs> like, it, does that emerge from your understanding of what anarchism is, <laughs> or does it get down to the fact that like you're an anarchist because you want to like express how like passionate you are? about you know about opposing the people that you oppose and like this is just how the teams are being divided up today you know that the the you know the shirts are against you know mask and vax requirements and the skins you know are for it so yeah um all right let's get uh let's get mateo before we uh we have to go hey and you can uh you can take the response to this into your next show really jesse so i'm i'm uh i think you're a good person to to think about this and answer this because you kind of roll with some of like what I would characterize as kind of the reactionary kind of horseshoe right sort of left, but you're also your own guy. And, and, uh, and what I see coming in like the next three years in American politics and American society, and you can take this on your next show because I think it ties in with the fentanyl plague is, uh, I see like, I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty good analyst. Uh, I'm kind of an obsessive student of American culture, and I, I know my shit pretty well uh, with these things. So, you know, I see really clearly kind of deeper American politics things happening, like uh, conservative Latinos in Texas giving the GOP the House back. Uh, that's probably going to happen. But, like, as I look at these fates and I look at, like, the next three years, there's nothing to fight for. There's nothing really to really get excited about. Because if the GOP wins the House back, they're going to have this horrible, bloody fight between kind of the QAnon, Jim Jordan wing and the kind of go along, get along, corrupt Kevin McCarthy uh, mistress in D.C. wing. Right. Uh, The Frank Luntz wing. Um, And they're going to be at each other's throats anyhow. And I think that just kind of goes with a generalized, uh, a generalized vacuum in the culture. There's going to be like no real important election. Mitch is going to sit on everything. And we're going to be looking at a real pile of dead bodies from COVID, uh, almost a million Americans, and like, uh, you know, maybe seven or eight really bad long COVID cases and a lot of fentanyl death, which, of course, is a transition to your next show. So I'm kind of wondering, you know, what the center will be in that context, especially in kind of the utter meaninglessness of, of Congress right now, because there really is no, I mean, you know, seeing cinema and, and uh, mansion effectively the BGOP is really makes, you know, and seeing DiFi run again, my God, you know, there's not yeah. much to look for there. I mean, um, you, you should come on my channel at some time. We can talk about this in more depth, but I, I do think the background of a lot of this, um, I mean, this even came up in my book, which is on a total different subject. It's just like the complete dysfunctionality of American politics and, and what happens when like everyone sort of knows that government can't improve their lives, at least at the national level and that there's no hope for anything. I think that is going to, uh, to fuck you up to use the technical term. And I well, think it's, just, that... it's more, it's not, it's not just knowing that like, you know, Congress is obviously like the ultimate reactionary, slow, unpopular beast, but it's just knowing that McConnell's going to sit on everything and Joe will veto anything he doesn't sit on. And they'll just crawl through, you know, they'll push to the same budget military every year and that'll be all they do. And everything yeah. else is just kind of, you know. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. Um, I do have to bounce just because I have a guest waiting. Otherwise, I'd stay longer, Ben. But I appreciate you having me on, and I hope your uh, I hope your listeners will denounce me a little bit harder next time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I did my best to to put out the call. It's I, not your fault. It's not your fault. I okay. Yeah, I mean, I really tried to get to to like to to work up some denunciations and to to let everybody know that this was their chance, but. Uh, 
yeah, I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little disappointed. Uh, I don't think you've seen the error of your ways, but it was still a good discussion. Uh, I, you know, especially the part about Hitler. I don't quite remember what you said about Hitler, but yeah, um, please edit that up. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, something like Hitler is good. I, I think that was it. I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent on that, but, uh, <laughs> the, uh, but in any case, uh, if that was, if that was it, I've got to say, I really disagree, but anyway, uh, <laughs> I will, uh, I will, I will talk to you soon. Uh, I'm not going to be able to listen to it live, but that sounds like an interesting episode. I am going to uh, listen to that later. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks again, Jesse. Thanks.